Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. About 12 years or so ago uh, was when I got married to Emma and in the build-up to us getting married we were told and many of you were probably told the same thing if you're married that one of the things that will most help you have a strong marriage is find some people who have been married for a while who are doing really well whose marriage is one that you'd look at and say we, we would emulate that we want to have a marriage like these people have and then try and get alongside them, try and spend some time with them, just see how they are with each other, see how they are with other people, see how they build their life and learn lessons from them. So we did that, we took it on board, we found some people who we, we knew and we, we got around them and it did really help. And the same can be true in many areas of life. If you want to do something well, often it's best not to just I can figure this out. I can work out how to do it. Often it's best to learn from those who are good at something, who have a skill or who have an experience that you want to see in your life. So Benjamin Franklin, what he would do, he was um, a couple of centuries ago, he wanted to learn how to write really, really well. And so what he'd do is he'd read articles in newspapers, magazines, he'd read short stories, he'd find things that, he was like, this is brilliant, And then he'd go and sit down at his desk with a pen and a piece of paper and he'd try and rewrite the same article that he's just read. He'd try and rewrite the the newspaper column or rewrite the story and try and get it word for word, try and catch the way that the author that he likes was phrasing things and was telling their story so that he could grow into the habit of telling stories in the same way. You hear the same with painters, lots of uh, people who are learning to paint, rather than just have a blank canvas and do their own thing, they'll try and reproduce the works of the masters. They'll take these classic works of art and they'll try and get every intricate detail the way the great painters have done. So they're learning how it's done and then in time they can start doing their own thing, but they've got the technique, they've got the way of doing it right. You get the same with rappers who will practice spitting the bars of the rappers that they love, trying to catch the cadence and the rhythm and trying to learn how to do it. And I must confess that younger Tom would quite often read passages from his favourite theology authors in the voice of their preaching and try and learn how to preach like the people who I emulated. You can learn skills, you can learn anything, you can learn habits in life from seeing those who've gone before and who've done well. And that's what I want us to do this morning. The same applies, not just individually for things you want to get good at, but as a community, as a people together. How do we learn how to be a great church community? Well, one way is look at church communities that have gone before and see what we can learn from them. And in the Bible, there's a book called Acts, and Acts picks up the story. After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, it tells the story of what happened next. What did the followers of Jesus do? What was the the spread of the gospel like over the next few decades? And within this book, we get given two particular churches that are just described a little bit as an example, as a blueprint, as a model for all of us for how we could do church life. 
Now, one of them is right at the start of the book of Acts. That's the church in Jerusalem. The other one's the one I want to talk about today, right in the middle of the book of Acts, and it's the church in Antioch. And we're just going to look at this church in Antioch, because I think they were smashing it out of the park. And I think for us, as a church community, as we see what life was like for them in Antioch, I think that will help us here in Reddish. I should warn you, this is going to be a 10-point sermon, so um, if you've got food in the oven, I'm sorry, uh, it might get burnt. No, I'm kidding. It's going to be rapid fire. We're going to do 10, but we're going to just rapid fire through that. I'm going to notice different things going on, and I think what this is going to do is two things. So I think partly what it will do is it might layer in a little bit of understanding why we do some of the things we do. As we talk about what they did, and we reflect on our church life together, I think maybe some pennies will drop. You're like, oh, right, I get it. I knew this thing was going on. I didn't really understand why or what it was all about. I see now. So I think there'll be a bit of that. And then I think there'll be a bit of provocation as well. I think it might challenge us in some areas where we can grow and where we can follow their example, get better, learn from how they did it. And as James said, this is all in the context of the give big offerings that are going to happen uh, next week and the week after we do them. And we always, on the Sunday before, just try and set a little bit of context, why and what. So as these things touch on some of the give big things, I'll just make the links as well and help us see that. Um, But let's read. There are two passages in the middle of Acts that describe the Antioch church. I'm going to read both of them, and then I'm going to pick out some points just to highlight. So you might want to follow along in your Bible with me. Uh, Please turn to Acts 11, uh, if you'd like to do so. I will read from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. And then I'm going to jump to the start of chapter 13 and just read the first three verses there. Alternatively, they're displayed behind me. So if you want to follow on the screen, you can do that as well. So Acts 11 from verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. And they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine all over the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And now jumping to the start of chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, 
Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That's the church in Antioch. I think it's a pretty inspiring church. It's a, it's a great account. There's so much in there that I'd love to see implemented here. Much of it is, and there's more we can learn from them. The first thing I notice is in verse 20, which might seem like a nothing verse. It might seem small. It might seem inconsequential. This was one of the turning points in the history of the church. I can't overemphasize how big this moment was. It says that up to this point, they'd been speaking the word to nobody except Jews. But now in Antioch, you've got some people who spoke to the Hellenists also. Hellenists means Greek speakers. So these are the natives of Antioch. Before, because Christianity had come out of the, the Jewish tradition, it had started in Jerusalem. When people went to other places, they'd go, okay, I will, we'll find the synagogue, we'll find the people who are of Jewish descent who are in this place, we'll tell them how Jesus fulfills their story. But in Antioch, you got people say, well, that's great, but we also want to reach other people. We also want to reach different people groups, different language groups, people who aren't from that background. We believe this good news is for everybody. So what you've got in Antioch was a version of Christianity that you'd call Antioch Christianity that was pretty different to Jerusalem Christianity. Now, the content was the same, the gospel doesn't change, but the form, the style, the culture, the vibe of it, massively different. It's because of that that we can get a Manchester-style Christianity, that we can do things the way we do, that fits this place, this part of the world, the way people operate here, that we're not just bringing in 2,000-year-old Middle Eastern forms and traditions and all having to kind of mash up into that. Our friend, Andy McCulloch, he's a, a church planter, part of our movement, has led churches in different parts of the world. I love how he phrases it. Christianity has an intrinsic translatability. It's, it's beautiful. Wherever you go in the world, you'll see churches gathering, you'll see Christians meeting, but it'll be different. The songs they sing will be different. The style of music, different. The language spoken, different. The way people dress, different. The foods that people eat, different. The way people preach, even the kinds of themes that come up in the preaching, different. The way you, you work out church leadership, different. That's in contrast to lots of other religious movements. Think about the way something like Islam would work. It'd be the same, wouldn't it? It'd be the same dress, the same language, the same forms, everywhere. Christianity is translatable, and that comes out of Antioch. And what that means, just to, to ground it here, that means that we want to see Christianity expressed in different places. We want to see different communities reached. It's why a year and a half ago, a group of people from Lady Barn and Gorton and different parts of our city thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a, a reddish Christianity? Now, there are other churches working here, so it's not like brand new ground, but couldn't we do something here in this style, in this way to reach this people? And so that was the birth of this site here. That's why we're talking about other places like Denton and Edgeley and Levensum and City Centre and all these places we're dreaming of going and praying that God will open up because the people who live there, we want to reach them and see the gospel hit them in a way that connects with them 
and make sense for them. That's why we've started a congregation in Spanish. That's why we've got groups meeting, speaking uh, different languages from India. That's why there are groups in all kinds of language groups, and we want to empower that. That's why we set up broadcast, because it's training people to go to different places. One big stream of that is equipping people for cross-cultural ministry into nations where really there isn't much Christianity at all, where the church is persecuted, opposed, where it's very, very difficult to be a Christian. There are people who want to go there. We're producing resources. This is part of what we're invested in to help them do that, to cross these boundaries like the people in Antioch did. Then if we move on, verse 21, what we see the effect of it was, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. Verse 24 says something similar, a great many people were brought to the Lord. They were seeing loads of people saved, isn't that amazing? I love hearing the stories of people's journeys. I love, one of the things we have as a, as a church team is a WhatsApp group. I love it on Sunday afternoons, just looking in that group and hearing people tell the stories about what's been happening in Reddish, in Gorton, in Lady Barn, wherever it may be, hearing the stories of what God is doing amongst his people. I, I know it's happening here. I know there are people meeting Jesus right here in Reddish, and it's happening across different places as well. I was chatting with someone uh, just this week who was telling me how over the Easter holidays, she chose to give her life to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's at one of our sites. So I met someone else last Sunday who he'd been a long way away from God. And then by chatting to a friend, he said, I'm going to come into church. I'm going to see what this is all about because I know there's something I'm missing. God is at work. He's drawing people to himself. How many of you have been to the baptism services that we've run? I think they are magnificent. You know those moments when people come up to the front one by one and they tell the story, they give the testimony of how Jesus has transformed their lives. And the stories are all so different. And people from different backgrounds experiencing Jesus in different ways, but finding eternal life in him. A couple of years ago, I was on holiday in the Isle of Wight and I walked past the National Lifeboat Institute Centre. And I just felt God prompt me like, hey, that's what we should be like as God's people, as a church. We should be like the lifeboats getting out there and rescuing those who are perishing. Isn't it good when we see God doing that? Here's number three. This church in Antioch were well connected. It talks about uh, how, in verse 22, they had connections with the church in Jerusalem. And the guys in Jerusalem were hearing all about what was happening in Antioch. And then they sent Barnabas down to help them. I've noticed this. I don't know if you've noticed the same thing. When churches go astray, one of the things that can contribute to that quite often is when they disconnect themselves, when they're no longer listening to others, when they're no longer in relationship with others. It allows them to just steer off the rails a bit. It's important to be well-connected. Now, as a church, we're part of a movement. This site is part of wider CCM. CCM's part of Catalyst, which is part of New Frontiers. There are all these people. I believe it was recently that um, you heard from Catherine came here, part of the movement that we're part of, able to share with us and speak into what we're doing. And lots of others do that as well. We want to increase our links into other places into other people that's part of why uh, with, with this offering we want to free up a whole bunch of Collins time in particular Collins got so much experience so much wisdom 
that we want to share that around, particularly other churches in the city. In Manchester, people are asking him to help and get involved with stuff going on. We want to free him up to do that. It's part of why we want to partner with the Northern Gospel Project, see new churches started. And when Barnabas got there, his verdict was, he came and saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was encouraged by what he saw. Oh, that when people come in to our church from different places, they'll see the grace of God and be glad. Number four, they taught a great many people. Right, just think about this. Barnabas gets there, he's working with them, and he's like, I know exactly who we need. So he sends for Saul, otherwise known as Paul. And he gets him to teach them for a year. Now, as teaching pastors go, that's quite something. This is the guy who wrote half the New Testament. He wrote Romans, he wrote 1 and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, and so on. Just imagine having Paul teaching you every week. I know James can preach some good sermons. This isn't a dig at James. But imagine how good it would be if you had Paul here every week, just expounding the scriptures. Good teaching matters. Understanding the word of God rightly is a great thing. We don't want to be a church whose theology is shaped by TikTok sound bites. Too many people are. Too many people hear these little kind of one-liners that have no grounding in the Bible, but they base everything on them. We want to go deep into the word. I'd encourage you to get along to that freedom in Christ that's been talked about. That's a good way to go deeper, to understand some truth. We have a school of theology that we run one Saturday morning a month. We do that to help you put some roots into your faith, to go a bit beyond what we've got time to do on a Sunday preach. It just helps you grow in the word. We'll do a new launch on that in September. Look out for that. You might want to come along to it. It's why we want to invest in the interns, people giving a year, yes, to serve, but also to grow and to learn and have roots put in their faith. These were Christ-like people. In Antioch, it says that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this wasn't a name that they picked for themselves. It wasn't like they had a church branding meeting, like, what should we call ourselves? Yeah, Christians, let's get that in a nice font and logo. It wasn't, it was the people outside who called them Christians, the people who were looking on, trying to find a way to refer to them. And the best they could come up with is, you're the ones who remind us of Jesus. Because that's what Christian means. It's like little Jesus. It's like you little Jesuses, you who resemble Christ. I mean, they're trying to take a dig, but as digs go, that's not bad, is it? Wouldn't it be good if everyone around us were like, yeah, you guys, you're so like Jesus. Ignatius was one of the church fathers. He was from Antioch. He, he, He grew up in this kind of environment. And he reflected on it. He said, It's not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one, then I can have the name. These were people who took seriously resembling Jesus in the way they live. It's more than just, I don't know how many of you know them old um, wristband things, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's more than that, although that's not a bad question to ask. What would Jesus do in the circumstances I'm in? But it's that the spiritual temperature there was so high, it's like they were instinctively, intuitively acting in ways that resemble Christ. 
One of the most powerful witnesses in a culture like this is distinctive Christian living, where you don't just blend in, but where you stand out and look like Jesus. Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor at the time of the Nazis in Germany, and he he had this little training centre called Finkenwald, where he'd gather other church leaders and pastors, and they, they were reflecting together, how do we live the way of Jesus in a culture like the one that they were in, with all that was going on, all the evil, all the, all, all the darkness, all the wickedness in their place. And someone said, like, how can we possibly expect to prevail against all that? And he pointed at the place, he was at Finkelwald, and he said, well, this must be stronger than that. And he wasn't talking in terms of my or resource. He was talking about the example, the lived way of Jesus amongst this group needs to go deeper, needs to reach further than the ideology around them. This church in Antioch, like the group that Bonhoeffer was working with, they were Christ-like. The life of Christ was lived through them. Next, they were prophetic. It talks in verse 27 about prophets coming down from Jerusalem. Now, I don't know as you hear that, how it strikes you. I don't know what your church background is. I don't know if you uh, have much experience of prophecy. It's, it's a fairly straightforward thing. It's when somebody hears God say something or has a sense in their mind or their heart, I think God's saying this, or maybe God gives a picture and they share it and it's helpful for everyone. We want to be open to the Holy Spirit working. We want to be listening to what God's saying. So we want to welcome people with the gift of prophecy. Uh, And I know as we worship, as we sing, there's space for people to share, hey, I think God's saying this. And we do it humbly. We do it in a way that uh, is, you know, ready to receive. We might might be wrong, but we, we believe in faith that God's saying something. And they welcomed prophets down to be with them. And the, the purpose of prophecy is to equip us all to do the works of ministry. And what this prophecy was that this guy Agabus gave is that there was going to be a famine. So there was going to be a need among some people, particularly uh, the people in Judea. And so this brings us on to the next point, because they chose to respond with generosity. They chose to give in order to meet the need that was before them. Basically, they saw the money that they had. Yes, it was theirs, but they wanted to put it to use for good. They wanted to use it so that God's purposes would happen. They didn't just want to hoard it for themselves, but they were thinking, hey, my money is a resource given to me by God. What can I do with it? Now, it's not wrong to have money, to enjoy money, to have things with our money, but it's always good to have this heart. How would God have me use this? Is there something I can do to be a blessing? And it says that each of them gave according to his ability. So if you're wondering, when you hear James talk about the give big offering, that we we would encourage you to give to. If you're wondering, well, okay, but how much should I give to it? Or even like regularly giving to church, if you're wondering, how much should I give? Well, it says each gave according to their ability. So if you're there thinking, actually, I don't have very much. I'm, I'm skinned. I've hardly got any money. Why are you talking about special offerings? Well, if you don't have much, no one would expect you to give much. You give according to your ability. I think there is a good principle, even if you don't have much to give something, give what you can. Jesus tells a story of a widow who gave her last penny, and she was incredibly blessed through it. There's a principle to give something, but if you're not in a position to give much, well, give what you can. 
But if you are in a position where you've got a bit more and you're able to give more, let yourself be stretched. Let God provoke that generosity in you. Because again, we heard earlier, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So what we tend to do when it comes to, to give big is my wife and I will we'll have a conversation, we'll chat about it, we'll just ask each other, hey, what do you sense God is stirring us to give to this offering? And we'll talk and we'll pray and we'll just see what the Spirit does and where he lands us. And I'd encourage you to do the same. Just take it to God and see what stirs up in you. So they're the seven that I got from chapter 11. We're going to jump to the other little passage in chapter 13 for our final three. It's a multicultural church. Verse 1 describes the leadership team of the church. And I wonder if you notice who was there. Because these are all people we know a little bit about their background. So it tells us first about Barnabas. And Barnabas was a guy from Cyprus. So that's his background. Then you've got this guy, Simeon, and from his nickname, Niger, uh, it would imply he's a black African man. And then you've got Lucius, who grew up in Cyrene in Libya. That's North Africa. You've got Menaean, who we're told was a member of the court of Herod, the ruler. Herod was a ruler in Palestine, in the Middle East. So Menaean would be a Palestinian guy, probably with a rich, privileged upbringing. And then you've got Saul, who we know is from Tarsus, which is in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. So that, that's your background of this team. You've got one from Cyprus, one from, I guess, sub-Saharan Africa, one from Libya, one from Palestine, and one from Turkey. They make up the team that lead the church in Antioch. Isn't that diverse? Isn't that, like for those days, the known world, that's a huge spread of different backgrounds coming together in the team that led the church in Antioch. Derwin Gray, a pastor and writer in America, he reflects on this and he says, Luke, the author of Acts, led by God the Holy Spirit, reveals the gifting and the roles of the five leaders, the leadership team of the multi-ethnic church at Antioch. Luke pointed out their ethnicity. Two were from Africa, one was from the Mediterranean, one was from the Middle East and one was from Asia Minor. The multi-ethnic church at Antioch was led by a multi-ethnic leadership team and that's how church should be church should be a place that people of all nations all ethnicities all cultures can be together as the people of God I I love the diversity we have at CCM it's something we've grown in but I find this so provocative seeing how this church in Antioch was and it makes me think goodness we've got a long way to go and we have got a long way to go in this to see God's vision a multi-ethnic church expressed in every part of our church life, including like it was for them in the leadership team. That's something we want to see and we want to grow in. Next is prayer. They were a praying people. Verse 2 talks about how they were worshipping the Lord. They were fasting. They were coming before God, seeking God's voice and bringing their concerns to him. It's been said that prayer is the engine room of a church, and I know that's a cliche, but it's true. And it struck me a couple of years ago just how true 
it was. Uh, I might have told you this before. I was listening, uh, I was at a conference, and it was one of those. I don't know if you've ever been to conferences where you get a speaker who's really, really clever, who knows a ton of stuff, and it's also as boring as anything. And it's like really hard work to stay with them. But you know if you do stay with them, you'll get the rewards. It was one of those. So I was listening, I was battling through. I was there with my friend Andy Brownlee. Some of you will know him. And like five minutes in, Andy says to me like, Tom, I'm drifting off. I'm just doodling on my sheet. Like, just give me a nudge if there's something good. I was like, all right, thanks, Andy. I'll do all the hard work and listen and you'll get the good, but fine. Um, so... A little way in, there was a bit, and I was like, Andy, Andy, you need to listen to this bit. And basically, what the guy was talking about was the books of Kings in the Old Testament. And uh, Kings starts with the building of the temple. And the temple was meant to be a building that was um, a place of the presence of God. And it was particularly designed as a place that the people, and especially the king, could go and pray and bring the concerns of the nation before God. And you've got this big description of the temple being built, the temple being dedicated. And then you've got the history of the people over centuries. And you've got um, 20 odd different kings all listed about them being born and dying and some accounts of what they did in their life. And then after these 20 different kings, 250 years, you get Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's day, there were problems. There was an enemy nation invading. And it says Hezekiah went to the temple to pray. And this guy pointed out, the guy who was speaking, that that's the only time in this whole history of a quarter of a millennium that any of the kings are recorded as going to the temple to pray. And this place was built as somewhere that for whatever's going on in the nation, they can bring it to God. And yet for 250 years, none of them do. And I was sitting there thinking, absolute idiots. Like, those kings, they're so foolish. Like, they, they can bring this to God. Like, they've been through such highs and lows. How much might be different if they'd have thought to actually use this temple that's been built to go and pray? And it took 250 years before anyone thought of it. And then I thought, hang on, I'm thinking they're idiots. But now I'm reflecting on my own life a bit. And the own, my own problems, my own ups and downs, my own stresses. And how slow am I to go and bring it to God? Do I resemble these kings a little bit more than I'd like to? Is it my first instinct? Maybe sometimes, but a lot of the time my first instinct is, how can I solve this problem on my own? What can I do? How can by my own strength I sort this out? So, ah, I need to learn from Hezekiah. We need to learn from Hezekiah. And this church in Antioch, I think they'd got it. They were going to God. They were fasting. They were worshipping. They were praying. Elizabeth Elliot said that prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. They were getting a hold of God's will. And because they'd done that, they saw the world changed. Because what God said to them, what they heard God saying as they were praying was to send Barnabas and Saul to the work which I've called them. Now, I just want you to imagine for a second 
that you are the church in Antioch. So think about you guys. Imagine you've got Barnabas as part of your congregation. We know a lot about Barnabas from the book of Acts. He was called the son of encouragement. He was the guy who, he just had such positivity towards everyone, such faith for everyone. He was the kind of glue around which community got built. There was something about Barnabas, pastorally magnificent individual. And then you've got Saul, one of the best teachers in the history of the world. His Bible teaching gift, second to none. Imagine you're in a prayer meeting about planting a new church or uh, sending out a mission to some other place. And you're getting a bit of faith for it. You're getting stirred up. You're thinking, yeah, come on, God, we're going to do this. And then you're like, oh, hang on, hang on. If we're going to do this, we're probably going to have to send out a few people. That's going to be difficult, isn't it? I mean, Think about the rotors. Think about all the gaps that there would be. Think about what it would be like to be coming on Sundays and there being a few less people because they've gone and started the next thing. All right, all right. We'll manage it. We can rebuild. We've got Barnabas. He's so good with people. We'll definitely regather. And then you hear the Holy Spirit say, actually, I want you to send Barnabas. Send Barnabas. He's so good. He makes the community work. We could have something brilliant in Antioch. And then you come to terms with it. You, you find peace. So, all right, it's fine. Barnabas can go. We'll just build a bit different. We'll, we'll, we'll build around the teaching gift of Saul. People will be drawn to his teaching. It's fine. Barnabas can go. Like, we, we, we've got Saul. No, no, send Saul as well. They could have built something magnificent in Antioch. They could have filled stadiums there with those two. Yet they responded to the call of the Holy Spirit to give them away, to send them out. This Give Big is an opportunity for us in the same spirit to be generous. They gave the best of what they had. We can give the best of what we have for the purposes of God. Do you know about this legacy? Do you know about the legacy of this church in Antioch? Do you know what's going on with them now? Nothing. There, there, there is not this church anymore. It doesn't exist. In the 13th century, Mongol invaders came smashed it to the ground and this thing that they might have built in their city is gone but that was never their legacy the legacy of the church in Antioch was never what they built there for themselves their legacy was always in what they gave away and empowered and sent out by sending out Barnabas and by sending out Paul they saw ripples of the gospel spread through the other towns of Asia Minor, into Greece, into Italy, throughout the Mediterranean. The whole movement that we see of the church spreading through Europe, North Africa, Asia, it all comes because this church chose to give and chose to send. That's the way of Christianity. It's the way of Jesus. We don't hoard or hold on to what we have, but we give and we serve. These people heard God and they gave generously. And that's what I want us to be about. Yes, as we think about Give Big, it's important we hear God and give generously. But also just as a marker for all of life. This is how we live. We listen to what God's saying and then we give whatever he calls us to. As we gather together today, we, we hear God and then we, we give. We serve one another. That's what we're all about. So that's the thought I want to leave you with.